For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. Love your enemies, Romans chapter 12, verse 14. So to this point now in our study of Romans chapter 12, Paul has laid before us the implications of the gospel with respect to our love for and devotion to God. He begins there with our love for and our devotion to God. And in consideration of the the infinite, the manifold mercies of God that have been lavished upon us through the gospel of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in light of the high cost of our redemption, in light of the immeasurable love that has been displayed at the cross in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the only reasonable response of one who is the beneficiary of such mercy, the beneficiary of such grace, is a constant and complete consecration of ourselves to God, that you present yourself a continual burnt offering to God, living, holy, and acceptable. The love of Christ displayed is compels us. The love of Christ displayed for us compels us. If he died for us, then we who live in him should no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died for us and rose again. Right? And this is a tremendously high calling. This is the calling of Paul in Romans chapter 12. And when we have done all those things which we are commanded, when we have done everything that we can do, when you, in consideration of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, present yourself as a continual and complete, entire and ongoing burnt offering to God, when you've done all that you can do, we may only say that we are unprofitable servants. Luke 17, 10, we have merely done what was our duty to do. Then, As Paul progresses then through Romans chapter 12, he lays before us the implications of the gospel with respect to our love for and devotion to one another. In consideration of the great love with which we've been loved through the gospel of his son, in light of the fact that he loved me and gave himself for me, I also ought to lay down my life and give myself in love for the brothers. I should, we should love one another as we have been loved. Love with a sincere love, love with a genuine love, a love that is without hypocrisy. First John chapter three, verse 16, by this, we know love. This is how we know what love is because he laid down his life for us. And therefore, in response to our understanding of that love, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Again, this is a tremendously high calling. We are going to sin against one another. We're going to neglect one another. We're going to say things that we don't mean or we shouldn't say. We're going to sin. In many ways, you and I are not particularly lovable. That's just the reality of it, right? And if we're honest with ourselves, we often, we often fail to love and serve one another as we ought to. We often fail to love one another as we've been loved. But as we arrive now at verse 14 this morning, in the 12th chapter of Paul's epistle here to the church at Rome, having called us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and having called us to love one another as Christ has loved us, Paul now exhorts us to a Christ-like love for our enemies. Dr. Murray says, perhaps no practical exhortation in the Bible places greater demands upon our spirits than to bless them that persecute us. 
This is, again, a tremendously high calling. And as difficult as it may be, as difficult as we've found it in our own experience, as difficult as it may be to consistently and faithfully love those who are attempting to consistently and faithfully love us back, it would seem to be another matter entirely to demonstrate this kind of love for those who attack us. That is the charge That is the charge of verse 14. Paul has been exhorting us to a love that is without hypocrisy. And if our love is going to be free from the stain, free from the stench of hypocrisy, then nothing less than the pattern of Christ's own love for us may inform it. If our love is going to be without hypocrisy, then Christ's own love for you and I must inform our love. It must fuel and motivate our love. It may be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, but our Lord himself has said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. If he loved me when I was at enmity with him, then I must love those who display enmity towards me. Do you see the concept? You see the principle at work, okay? That's the way we're to love. It's a tremendously high calling, a tremendously high calling. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The love with which we are to love. When we think about love for God, when we think about love for one another, and now in verse 14, as we think about loving our enemies, the love with which we are to love is impossible for men. If, do, you, do you feel the weight of that? It is impossible, impossible for men, but not with God. The Bible says, for with God, all things are possible. But you and I have to concede in this. You and I have to concede that we're not gonna do this in and of ourselves. If you're gonna obey Paul in this text, If you're going to obey Paul in Romans chapter 12, you're not going to do that in and of yourselves. You're not going to do that in your own strength. You're not going to be able to grit your teeth and bear it and work it out. You're not going to be able to run like that in your own power. It's not possible for you. There's no mystery about that. If if you're going to obey the Lord here, it is going to require resources of omnipotent grace that we simply do not have in and of ourselves. And we need to love this way, right? Your Christian life is founded upon this love displayed for you. Your Christian life must be motivated and compelled by this kind of love for one another, for the Lord, for one another, and even for your enemies. We've got to be able to love this way. Loving this way is what preserves the church in peace and in unity. Loving this way is what causes us to endure through trial and tribulation. Loving in this way is what gets you through tough times, causes you to persevere. If you don't love this way, if your love grows cold, then your days are numbered, you could say. And this is Paul's admonition. Frankly, there's a warning in the spaces here between the lines to us that we must love in this way. We must love as we've been loved. Only the resources of God's grace applied by the Spirit are going to be equal to the task that lies before us. God help us, amen? We need to be praying that God would help us. Now, the first thing that I want you to see 
from chapter 12, verse 14, is the connection is a, the connection between verse 14 and verse 13. Paul has been explaining to us what sincere love looks like, okay? And he's been explaining to us what sincere look, love looks like in the context of the church. That's not um, simply love in a vacuum. The love that Paul is calling us here to is love in a context, and it's in the context of the church. It's not love in a vacuum. It's love in the trenches, okay? It's not the command to love with no regard for our circumstances. It's a command to a sincere love, a genuine love, precisely because of our, our circumstances. Because of our circumstances, because of how weak we are, because of the trials we're going to face, because of the tribulations we're going to go through, we need this love. Paul is calling us to this love for our good, precisely because of the circumstances we're going to face. So verse 10, think about this with me now. Verse 10, we are tempted to be self-absorbed. We are tempted to be self-seeking. We're tempted to think of ourselves before others, but... A sincere love, verse 10, displays deference and esteems others more highly than yourself. We have to love in that way. Why? Because we are prone to the opposite, do you see? It's because of our circumstances. We need to love in a way that gives preference to others, gives preference to another. Verse 12, we're going to sin against one another. And so a love that is without hypocrisy, a sincere love, a genuine love, rejoices in hope, the hope of the gospel, a hope for the grace of God rejoices in hope and endures through difficulty, perseveres through trial, perseveres through tribulation. It's not a love that gives up when the going gets tough. It's not a love that you simply throw in the white towel and run. You're going to hang in there and do the hard work. Frankly, if you're married, this is the kind of love you need to have in your marriage. You have some difficulty. You can't just pack it in and flee. You're committed to one another. In a covenant relationship, you've got to love one another with this kind of love or you're not going to make it. That's why relationships in this world fail. We're not loving one another with this kind of love. In verse 13, then in verse 13, a sincere love is a love that gives to the needs of the saints and is, to quote Paul here, given to hospitality. Now notice with me, as we talked about last time together, the word translated given there in verse 13 literally refers to a pursuit. You're going to distribute. You're going to have fellowship, koinonio, in the distributing, into ministering to the, the needs of the saints. And you're going to pursue philoxenia, a love for strangers. You're going to pursue hospitality. Verse 13, a love that is without hypocrisy gives to the needs of the saints and pursues love for strangers, and in context, in context, while you and I are pursuing this sincere love, this sincere love for one another, this sincere love for God, this sincere love for those among us we don't know, right? While we're pursuing this kind of love, there will be those in pursuit of us with malice. This command is given to us in a context there will be those in pursuit of us with malice. I want you to see that in verse 14. The word translated in verse 14, persecute, is the very same Greek word for pursue in verse 13. So Paul here appears to be employing a play on words. You are to pursue love 
in this case for the stranger, given to hospitality, you're to pursue love for the stranger among you and, verse 14, you're to bless those who pursue you. Bless you who bless those who pursue you. Bless and do not curse. It's a word that refers to opposition with malice. While you are pursuing sincere and genuine love in the context of the church, there are going to be those who pursue you with malice. That is the context in which we live and breathe and do our work, right? That's where we're at, brothers and sisters, in the church. Where the pursuit in verse 13 is love, the pursuit in verse 14 is hostility, is malice, is opposition. Persecution, persecution isn't Merely, isn't a word that merely refers to opposition. You think about the nature of that word. It doesn't only refer to opposition. It's a word that implies opposition with hostility. It's a word that implies injustice. It's a word that implies mistreatment or maltreatment. It refers not to just opposition, but malicious opposition. It refers to unprincipled or unwarranted Hostility, that's the word there translated persecution. While you pursue faithfulness to the Lord in service to the Lord's church, there will be those who pursue you for evil and not for good. That is the reality of our context. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, what? Suffer persecution. There will be those who oppose you There will be those who curse you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for his name's sake. While you are pursuing love, they are pursuing hate. They may even kill you thinking they do God service. If you've been around this church for any length of time, you see the truth in what Paul is saying there. Amen? And this is not a a light matter. This is not a, a theoretical matter. This is a matter that is intensely intensely personal. It is intensely practical. You've seen this. While you are pursuing love, they are pursuing hate. That's the reality. That's our context. Now notice, notice, Paul does not say if, if there happens to be anyone among you who pursues or persecutes you. In other words, the the persecution that Paul states here, refers to, is not implied or it's not happenstance, it is stated as a matter of fact. It is stated as a matter of fact. Paul's concern in the text is not the likelihood of persecution. Paul's concern in the text is how you and I respond to it when it comes. When, not if, when it comes. Is it going to come? Yes and amen, right? (laughs) Paul warned the elders from Ephesus He said, three years, day and night with tears, I warned you that savage wolves would rise up from outside and creeping from within you, from among you, drawing away disciples after themselves. I warned you day and night with tears. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. That's our context. That's what we're going to face. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Paul's concern in the text is how you and I respond to that when it comes. You are to bless those who pursue you with malicious intent. That's the point of Paul's text. You are to bless those who pursue you with malicious intent. You are to bless and do not curse. 
Now, am I, am I alone? Am I alone in when I first started reading that text or maybe understanding the implications of the text? Am I alone in thinking that is tough? <laughs> you are to bless those who pursue you with malicious intent. That is not our natural response. That is not our natural desire. That's not what comes at first out of our flesh, out of our heart, out of our mind. But that is the teaching of scripture. You are to bless and do not curse. And here's fuel for our obedience to this command. This is a principle that lies at the very heart of the gospel. This is how you were loved by Jesus Christ. This is how you and I are loved. Let that fuel our motivation, our desire to obey the Lord in this. I've planned for us this morning to spend our time in consideration of this principle from the Bible and to look at various texts that will help us to understand it and pursue it. And in thinking through that, I want us to begin in the Old Testament under the law, right? This is taught from Genesis to Revelation. This principle you'll find all over the Bible. I want to begin in the Old Testament under the law in the book of Exodus. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 23, Exodus 23. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn to love in this way. In Exodus 23, the law of Moses is admonishing the people of God to deal with one another in justice. We've got to deal justly with one another, justly with others. We need to deal in justice and in righteousness in the Lord's church. We are to be a people who deal justly with one another. The regulations and the statutes given here to Israel under the law of Moses were essentially meant to teach Israel how to apply the Decalogue. He'd given them the 10 commandments, the 10 words, right? And now we're going to learn how to apply the 10 commandments in the various circumstances that we face in our day-to-day life, right? In particular, in their day-to-day life as the people of God, as the nation of Israel in the wilderness. The, The application of these laws, the application of the 10 commandments here wasn't meant to be exhaustive. It was meant to be representative. The Lord is teaching them how they, to, how they are to apply the Ten Commandments to life, okay? The application was meant to be instructive. That's why Paul, when he's applying the law of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Paul refers to that text under the law. You are not to muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. And then Paul asks the question, is it really oxen that God is concerned about? It's a rhetorical question. No, <laughs> God is concerned about the application of that principle in your circumstances, right? So in Exodus 23, when we come to Exodus 23, we find here an application of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The implications of the ninth commandment are far reaching. And this is one example. Upholding justice, upholding righteousness depends first and foremost on telling the truth. If you're going to uphold justice, you must tell the truth. If the truth is perverted, then justice will be perverted. You see? So the emphasis of the text then is on the necessity of absolutely uncompromised honesty in whatever comes out of your mouth. Verse one, you shall not circulate a false report. Doug Stewart, in his commentary on this text, said, a false report can be damaging to the covenant community. It may influence the way we relate to one another. It may lead to a prejudiced attitude toward another person. 
Stewart says a false report may serve as the basis for improperly bringing to trial someone who is actually innocent. Or false reports may create factionalism as one group believes the report about a member of another group. False reports create conditions that can lead to the conviction and punishment of an innocent person. I didn't write that in Doug Stewart's commentary. He wrote that himself there. <laughs> That's what Douglas Stewart said. You shall not circulate a false report. Verse one, do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Literally there, do not join hands with. Do not help a wicked man bring a malicious witness. The law has in mind two or more people colluding to bring a false charge. That's what the law has in mind. Two or more people colluding to bring a false charge. Because the law of God placed such a significant weight on establishing a matter on the basis of two or three witnesses, absolute honesty and unimpeachable testimony was necessary in their legal proceedings. Otherwise, an innocent party could be condemned or a guilty party might be freed. The legal system in Israel depended upon an unimpeachable testimony of absolute honesty on the part of those witnesses. Verse two, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Now, these, these, these principles are really practical, aren't they? <laughs> the word certainly would be used of a crowd, but here the word literally refers to the majority. The temptation in verse two, the temptation that the law is warning against here is the temptation of being persuaded into an action that is unjust due to a manipulation of a large group of people, manipulation of a crowd or manipulation of a mob, a majority. That temptation is because of a fear of personal loss, a fear of friends, a fear of security, a sense of belonging. It may be due to a fear of lacking, uh, a fear of looking foolish in front of the majority, the perception of the majority, how you're viewed. It may be due to a concern of being rejected by the majority. All perceived as the potential risk associated with taking a position that is different from the majority. We see the temptation, right? Here's the position that the majority is taking. And you as an individual, you look at that position, you look at the majority, there is a temptation to weigh the risk of going against the majority and to actually enter into an unjust action or an unjust course or unjust conduct because of the temptation or because of the risk of personal loss to yourself, right? The risk to yourself. As a Christian, brothers and sisters, you can expect to be consistently tested in this regard. Whether it's a large group of people or a small group of people, where it's one, you in the presence of two, you in the presence of three, you in the presence of 300. You can be expected to be tested in this area consistently. And brothers and sisters, you need to strengthen your resolve, your faith in the Lord, your faith in his word, and you need to learn to stand alone. You need to learn to stand alone. You stand for the word of God. You stand for the Lord against the world if it's necessary. If everything else is burning down around you, you stand for truth. You stand for righteousness. You stand for the Lord. Amen? That was uh, Athanasius. 
uh, his claim to fame, so to speak, was that he stood against the world when it seemed as though the world was against the doctrine of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stuart, again, there is a temptation to join the majority in accusing that person of some sort of impropriety even when one has no actual direct knowledge that the person is guilty. There is the temptation to join the majority. Verse 2, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. <laughs> Verse 3, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. You're not to be partial, even to the poor man. If you're not partial to the poor man, you certainly should not be partial to the rich man, right? And then there is a very interesting shift in the text in Exodus 23. The law goes from warning you against participating in an injustice to warning you how you should treat those who have wronged you. You see how practical this is? Verse four, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. Verse five, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Is it donkeys and oxen that God is concerned with? Right? This, principle, this principle is reflected throughout the law. His concern is the very same principle enjoined by Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. It's the very same concern. Paul is concerned, Moses is concerned, the Lord is concerned with how we respond to people who mistreat us, with people who have come against us to perpetrate some injustice. How do we respond? In this particular case, that principle is applied to what we do with this man's donkey or his ox, right? But the principle is meant to be broadly applied. You can't say that you are not required to observe this principle because you have no donkey or ox, or he has no donkey or ox. Is it donkey or oxen that the Lord is concerned with? Right? Your enemy, here's the principle, right? Your enemy, verses four and five, your enemy has, has suffered some sort of loss. He's suffered some sort of loss. Because he is your enemy, the temptation would be to refuse to help him. Maybe even to gloat in his mistreatment, in his loss, in his suffering. When, at the same time, you have the power to alleviate his suffering. Because he is your enemy, the temptation is to leave him in his suffering when you have the power to alleviate his suffering. Besides, you may think to yourself, he's getting what he deserves. He's getting what's coming to him. The way he treated me, I'm not going to lift a finger to help that guy right? You can see how that's a form of retaliation, can't you? Standing by and doing nothing is a form of retaliation. It's a, it's a form of taking matters into your own hands. You're going to let him wallow in his suffering. What does Paul say? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. What we're actually called to do in that circumstance is to, just, that circumstance is to display love for our enemy. We're, actually, we're being called to display love toward that person who is our enemy in his loss. We do that by showing compassion for him in his loss, in his suffering, by showing kindness toward him in his suffering. We do that by showing the grace and the mercy that has been shown to us. We do that by showing grace and mercy in our dealings with our enemy. If his donkey has a flat on I-4 and you're passing by 70 miles an hour, you 
pull over and you help him get his donkey out of the road, right? That principle taught under the law and exemplified in the Old Testament is taught throughout the scriptures. And we're called to love that way in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. That law, that principle taught under the law in the Old Testament is then taught by the Lord himself in the Lord's application of this Old Testament law in Matthew chapter five, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me to Matthew chapter five. What is the Lord doing in the Sermon on the Mount? The Lord is explaining or expositing the law of God. In this section of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, he's correcting the Jews on their understanding of the law of Moses. They have a misunderstanding of the law of Moses. Uh, Mainly, they have a misunderstanding of the law of Moses as it was interpreted and as it was applied by the Pharisees. And the Lord is going to correct them on their wrong understanding of of the law. So the Lord begins, in many cases, in this section of the sermon, begins with, you've heard that it was said, right? You've heard that it was said, but then the Lord responds with a correct understanding of the law. But I say to you, right? You've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. That's the way the Lord begins here in verse 43. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, where that came from is a mystery, right? Where it came from was out of the heart and mind of the natural man because it did not come from the mind or heart of God, okay, as we'll see. Uh, that came from man. We don't know where that came from, right? That's, that's their understanding though. From the law, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That reflects the heart attitude of fallen people. It's the way that Jews felt about the Samaritans. That was the attitude of Jonah on the hill overlooking Nineveh right? There's a sense of entitlement in responding to our enemies with contempt, right? There's a sense that we are owed that or we're entitled to it. Verse 44, the Lord says, however, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. I say these things with emphasis because I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. (laughs) Um, God, demonstrates his love for people who are at enmity with him. He sends, he makes his son to rise even upon them. He sends his reign, his goodness, his compassion, his kindness, his forbearance, even upon them. Though they are the enemies of God, God responds with common grace and compassion. Sinful men are going to face the judgment of God for their sins. That is just and that is righteous. And that's why you see admonitions in Scripture. We're going to see this admonition when we get to Romans chapter 12 and the verses that follow, where Paul says, leave place for the wrath of God. God says, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. There is a sense in which God will, in justice and in righteousness, judge the wicked. There is a hell. But until that judgment and justice comes from God himself, you and I are to exemplify the love, grace, and mercy of God in loving our enemies 
sinful men will face the just judgment of God for their sins. But while that judgment is withheld in God's patience, he demonstrates kindness. He demonstrates his goodness. He demonstrates his forbearance. In Acts 14, Paul says, he gave them, talking of of pagans, pagans, Paul says, he gave them food and wine, gladness of heart. And in that, God did good. He did not leave them without a witness of himself. In that, God did for them, to them, good. He demonstrates his goodness, his patience. And he does so, Romans chapter 2, because that should lead them to repentance. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, then what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In other words, there's nothing extraordinary about that kind of love. That's the way the world loves, right? That's indicative of the the natural man. That's how lost people love. Verse 47, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Can you hear in the words of the Lord there, this admonition or this exhortation to pursue a love that goes beyond the world to what end? For what reason? For the glory of God, for your own good. We're to go beyond that kind of love because that's what the world does. Therefore, verse 48, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. You shall demonstrate love and compassion and kindness and goodness and patience just as your father in heaven has demonstrated love and compassion and kindness and goodness and patience toward you, right? That's the principle. That's the principle. The Lord's own sermon here in Matthew 5 is the source of Paul's language. In Romans chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, Luke's account of this sermon in Luke chapter six, Luke adds these words that would help us to further understand this principle. Luke six, verse 29. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. Now, do you see how that is a, that's applying a principle in how we are to respond to those who spitefully treat us. It doesn't mean that if the mugger on the street is about to attack your family and he takes a blow at you with his right hook, that with your family standing there and this guy, you know, trying to rob you, that you're just going to, you know, it's, it's not, that's not what is being taught in the text. Right? This is a principle that's being applied to teach us how we are to respond to those who spitefully treat us. You're to defend your family. You're to protect your family. Husbands, that's your charge. Right? You have a right to defend yourself. That's not what the, the text is addressing. The text is addressing our response to or our love for our enemies. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer him the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, exploiting you for your cloak, so to speak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. It's the golden rule, even towards our enemies. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But, verse 32, if you love those who love you, then what credit is that to you? In other words, what example of Christian love 
is that in your conduct and actions? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. You see, we're not to act like the Gentiles, so to speak. We're not to act like the nations around us. We're to act like the people of God. We're to love like the people of God. We're to look like the people of God. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. You're no better than Citibank, right? We're not merely to love as the world loves. We're not merely to love in a way that seems reasonable to sinful men. We are to love in the way that you and I have been loved. So then, verse 35, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. Lord frequently refers to reward for those who love him and obey him. There are rewards for Christians who live the Christian life. You're going to be rewarded. It's... um, The Bible says that God is not unjust to forget your labor on his behalf, forget your labor of love for him. The Lord is just in remembering that. Here, the Lord speaks about reward for following him in this good example. Because, because he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Do you see the principle in verse 35? This kind of love magnifies the grace, the mercy, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God. You'll be sons of the most high when you love in that way because he himself was kind, is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Therefore, verse 36, be merciful just as your father is also merciful. Now notice the the principle here is attached to to another principle, right? Think with me. You are the rich beneficiaries of the lavish love of God in Christ Jesus. If you're in, in him by faith, you've become the rich beneficiaries of a lavish love. We must love then, not merely as a worldling. We must love as we have been loved. That kind of love is displayed by the Lord himself at the cross. If there was ever a time in all of recorded history when cursing your enemies might have been justified, that time in recorded history would have been it. It would have been at the cross. But while the Lord Jesus Christ was being spitefully treated and abused at Calvary, the Lord prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. They do not understand the gravity of their actions. It's the kind of love that is displayed by Stephen when he was dragged out of the city and stoned to death. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. There's no excuse for the egregious sin that was committed. There's no excuse. But there is cause to hope in the glory, hope in the mercy of God. Why? Because he is merciful. He is infinite in mercy, rich in grace, abounding in loving kindness. And there is every reason to hope in his mercy and his grace. And due to his compassion. Do you see how the Lord's prayer, Stephen's prayer, magnifies the mercy, the grace, the goodness of God? It's not magnifying Stephen, not magnifying the Lord in that case. It's magnifying the compassion of God. Do his compassion, do his kindness, his goodness, his love, Both the Lord and Stephen were compelled to pray for their enemies. 
It's Paul's own example in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. And how does Paul respond to that mistreatment? Those false accusations, how does Paul respond? He responds with blessing, responds by enduring, responds by entreating, responds with love. Distinctively Christian love is demonstrated in this, that you bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That's the kind of love, brothers and sisters, that glorifies God, magnifies his love displayed in the gospel. It's the kind of love that magnifies the grace and mercy of God. The Lord himself is going to deal righteously, justly with sin in his own time. Paul in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, knowing that, knowing that, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Show love for your enemies, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a temptation to be overcome by evil when you become embittered against your enemies rather than demonstrating love toward your enemies. Brothers and sisters, if it were not for this kind of gracious love from the heart of God himself toward you, you would perish. You would be lost. This is the kind of love that is at the very heart of the gospel. If you're in Romans, turn back to Romans chapter five. Hang in there with me, Romans chapter five. The marvel of God's love is that it was a love for his enemies. It was a love for the ungodly. In Romans chapter five, look there at verse six. Verse six, Paul says, when we were still without strength, when we were still detestably weak in our sin, with respect to our sin, without hope and without God in the world, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In his own time, he died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man, or for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But, verse eight, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If God treated you the way that you deserved to be treated, you would be in hell. There would be no salvation. There would be no mercy. But our God is love and he demonstrates his love toward his enemies. Verse nine, much more than having now been justified by his blood when we were enemies of his, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were loved by God in that way, right? We were reconciled to God through the death of his own son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall surely be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. If we rejoice in the love that God has demonstrated toward us, then it will be the joy and rejoicing of our hearts to love others to the praise of his glory. Now that principle, that is the principle that Paul enjoins in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. That principle, you can see, that principle originates with God himself, right? It reflects his own heart and we bear his image. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Peter, 
treats this very subject at some length, and we will close with this from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to these words from Peter. Finally then, finally then, here's your charge. All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. We've been called to this. We've been called to this context. We've been called to this love because, verse 10, he who would love life and see good days, let him, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Let him refrain his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? No one can come against you. You are held in the hands of God, so to speak. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled by their threats, but rather, verse 15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. In the midst of that difficulty, we have hope because of him. And we have that with meekness and fear. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We suffer, and that way we suffer together with him. Do you see? Bless those who persecute you, Paul says. Bless and do not curse. It's a tremendously high calling, amen? But it's a love that reflects God's own character, and that should motivate us. For the glory of God, we should love our enemies in this way. Let us bless those who persecute us. Let us bless and do not curse. This is the love, brothers and sisters, with which God has loved us. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for this love that has been lavished on us. Thank you, Lord, um, for the tremendous example that your own love is to us. And I pray, Lord, that your love, the love with which you have lavished upon us in the gospel of your own son, whom you sent to die in our place, I pray that that great love, the great love with which we've been loved, will motivate us and will compel us to obey your word here in loving you as living sacrifices, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love one another as we would want to be loved as Christ has loved us, and to even love our enemies, knowing that that is the very same love in which you loved us. Thank you for this truth, this principle, this taught so clearly in your deep word. Help us, help us. We are powerless in and of ourselves to do any of this. We need work of the grace of God by your spirit. Amen.
Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.